0: My guest today is science writer Neil Shubin, who'd been scheduled to be at Bookmarks on March 29th, but instead we'll be talking from a distance of much more than six feet about his new book *Some Assembly Required*. Neil, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be
0: here. Uh, you know, as a, as I was reading your book, I flashed back to this moment in childhood when I used to listen to these records by this English comedy duo called Flanders and Swan, and they had this great line. They said, "We can't talk to scientists." Because we don't understand the language of science, they can't talk to us. Because they don't understand anything else. The poor dears. How do you effectively write about science for non-scientific readers?
1: Um, the whole for, for me, I mean, the, the 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 motivating factor and the factor that I that really sort of guides my my uh, my work is there are amazing stories of science, that science is a human enterprise. We tend to think of it as this white coat, sort of ivory tower kind of thing. But no, it's, it's real people digging in the mud, cracking rocks, taking chances, sometimes getting lucky, working hard. Failing, succeeding, learning from failures, and so forth. That you know, these 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 human stories are have a generality to them. Um, and so, when I write science, it's really kind of all about how we know what's the what's the history of people fumbling around in the dark to discover something uh, about our world. Uh, what challenges did they face? How did they overcome those challenges? Or maybe they didn't overcome those challenges. Maybe they they you know they, they were overwhelmed by events. I mean, there's just so much of a a human narrative in science that I, I, I that. You know, I can leverage that. If I want to talk about some complex things in science, uh, I always try to find the human angle. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at my questions, and I wrote this next question about two weeks ago. It seems a lot more relevant now than it did then. But the question is just: Do you think it's more important now than ever to find ways to communicate about science to those people who maybe are not trained in the field?
1: That's right. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, we are living in an age not just with coronavirus, but more generally, the climate change and. And human health and agriculture and so forth, where the decisions we need to make as a society require a, an educated populace. That's what democracy depends on. Um, but just at a time when we really have to rely on scientific information and rely on a populace that, that feels comfortable with that, we, we, we have this disconnect uh, where some people are, are are turned off by science, are uh, are scared of it, intimidated by it. Others are antithetic find the whole um the whole thing of folly, or it's against their religious viewpoint, and so forth. So we have these barriers, and so again, I return to the, the what we opened with uh, the way to break down those barriers is to cont- is to focus on yeah, of course, the science, but it's the humanity is as as a lot of it, and those are the stories I think that are our entree to these sort of more complicated things in science.
0: yeah, yeah, so before we talk about the new book, let's backtrack a little bit. Tell us about your first book, Your Inner Fish.
1: Yeah, so your inner fish began um, in 2004, 2005. What was happening is my colleagues and I were leading expeditions. We still lead expeditions, but at the time we were leading them to the the Canadian Arctic, to Ellesmere Island, an island just uh, west of, of Greenland. And we were interested in understanding the transition from to how fish evolved to walk on land, an event that we believe happened about 380 to 375 million years ago. So we you know, we were working up there, we we, we, we after six years of failing and learning from failures, believe me, I'm an expert in that. Uh, we ended up finding what we were looking for, which is a fish you know, with fins and, and gills and scales and so forth, but it had arm bones inside the fin. It had a shoulder, an elbow, even parts of a wrist. Uh, it had lungs as well as gills. It had a neck, you know, so it was really an intermediate, you know, one of the earliest creatures to walk on land. And so at the time I was discovering that, I was also teaching human anatomy to medical students here at the University of Chicago for a lot of reasons. But I was leading the human anatomy course, and for, for our you know future docs, and invariably those those students would ask me in their first class in medical school, they'd say, "Hey, Dr. Schupan, what kind of what kind of doctor are you? You know, are you a cardiologist? Are you a neurosurgeon? You know, what is this?" I said, "Well, I'm a fish paleontologist." <laughs> they'd be like, "What? I want my money back! Get me out of here!" <laughs> but, but it soon became clear, you know, in my lectures that that being a paleontologist and not just any paleontologist, a fish paleontologist is a powerful way to teach and learn about human anatomy. And the reason is, you know, each of us, inside of our bodies, inside of the DNA, inside of our cells and tissues and organs, all that stuff, we have... Billions of years of the history of life. We have artifacts of all that stuff. So that literally motivated me to write the book, Your Inner Fish, which was basically uh, uh, that I, I did a riff on that chapter after chapter, exploring the deep history of the human body, uh, You know, unpacking how we have billions of years of history inside of us. And so that was my first foray into into science writing. And I was I was really aided by that there were great human stories to tell, not the least of which was some what my colleagues and I were doing um in discovering fossils but there were others that were just even more amazing in a lot of ways so um you know here uh, it was also coming coming about at a time when people were um some people were bothered by evolution and the fact that we were you know that they're arguing that we're related to apes and chimpanzees and the whole point of my book was i don't worry about the apes and chimpanzees it's the fish (laughs) (laughs) they're in your family tree that you should worry about so
0: the that sort of leads nicely into the second book um which is some assembly required, and the, the subtitle of that book is Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils and DNA. How did DNA first enter into the field of, of paleontology, and how has it changed that field?
1: Yeah, it's been a game-changer for, for our understanding the history of life. You know, What's amazing here is just think about the history of science, for instance. Let's just focus on 1800s. Let's focus on Charles Darwin. He wrote a book, Origin of Species, first edition, came out in 1859. You know, before we had any knowledge of genes, let alone DNA, yet the ideas that he came up with, uh, in the middle 1800s, uh, really apply very beautifully to DNA. Now we've witnessed in the last 30 years an incredible revolution in scientific thinking. You know, we've had the Human Genome Project, we had the Corn Genome Project, rice genomes, genomes for thousands of different species. We now know the genetic material for, for many species on the planet. We can now ask the question at the level of DNA, what makes a human different from a chimpanzee? We have the genome of chimpanzees. We have the genome of humans. Well, what's different? How'd that come about? And that has given us sort of game-changing insights so that when we look at the history of life, we now have the fossil record. That is, we can see what the ancient world looked like. We can you know, reconstruct the species that existed tens, if not hundreds of millions of years ago. But also, we now have the genetic record for living creatures. And we can begin to ask the question, how does DNA build bodies from egg to adult during development? How does DNA evolve to produce new species? You know, And what can it tell us uh, about the history of life? And you know, having these different records is so incredibly powerful. And we've lived through a scientific revolution, really. I mean, it's just utterly remarkable what we can do now. Yeah. I think what a lot of us think about... The
0: combination of DNA and fossils, we start thinking about, you know, Jurassic Park and things like that, where uh, DNA of extinct species has been able to be extracted or recreated. Is is there some truth in that? Can you look at DNA of species that have been gone for ten million years?
1: Not ten million years no we can we can extract DNA for things that have been gone for on the order of hundreds of thousands of years uh, millions is a little bit long yeah. you know so the ability so by the so DNA does degrade pretty pretty rapidly it can be preserved in the right conditions, but you know in most conditions really doesn't preserve DNA for that long so you know dinosaur DNA for instance, which we'd love to have we don't um, but what we have are the DNA for living creatures and we can begin to ask the question you know how does you know a bird How does the bird genome differ from the, you know, say, a crocodile genome? And it's amazingly how informative that can be. So yes, we we, you can extract DNA from extinct creatures, but not that you know that not not too ancient. We really when we when we want to do the deep comparisons, we look at the living ones.
0: And I think again, what a lot of us, you know, you you write about uh, billions of years of life. And you just mentioned Darwin. A lot of us immediately go to Darwin when we think about the way that life has evolved on Earth. And I think a lot of us have a basic understanding of the theory of natural selection, and we kind of accept that that's the way things are. But it turns out the evolution of life is a lot more complicated. One of the things that I found fascinating was what you call the 2% of a wing problem. Can you tell us about that problem and about its solution?
1: yeah exactly so the um, you know when Darwin published the Origin of Species, he did his first edition in eighteen fifty nine and as you can imagine it it caused quite a stir. There were people who supported it very strongly. there were people who were highly critical of it, and so one of the things that happened was uh, in, right after eighteen fifty nine a very famous anatomist by Sir george jackson mavart that 's his name um, came up with an incredible uh, rebuttal to Darwin, very strong rebuttal, and one that Darwin took very seriously. And so that went, by the time he published the sixth edition of The Origin of Species, about five years after the first, he uh, had a whole section where he went after Mavart and came up with an incredible idea. So what Mavart basically said was, look, you know, let's just take you know, the, five, the 2% of a wing problem. What good is that? You know, what good is that? Why would, you know, when you think about the origin of birds, or even just like to take the transition from, you know, fish that live in water to fish that live on land, take any of these great transitions what are used are like only partial structures They're, you know if a structure like an organ is only you know how could you fly with 2% of a wing what good is that but even more there's a bigger problem is if you want to compare birds to reptiles or land living animals to fish it's not just one structure that has to change it's lots of them just think about fish that evolving to walk on land they need legs lungs necks all these structures they'd all have to appear simultaneously so the 2% of a wing problem is a very general one that that Lazart um, brought up, and uh, uh, that is you know what uses a partial structure, so how could you have intermediates, uh, and the other is so much has to change simultaneously, and how could any big changes happen at all and that was the challenge you know, He threw the gauntlet to Darwin you know with that with that, and uh, Darwin in the sixth edition had one of the great responses uh, and he showed how these two percent of a win can be you know, may not be useful for flight, but it may be useful for something else. And he had this wonderful idea, which is much of evolutionary change doesn't involve you know, the origin of new structures, but it may be using old structures in new ways, changing their function. Uh, that seems like a very subtle point, but it is really, really, really profound. Um, and it was very predictive. See, that's the thing here. He was able to make a prediction about what people, Darwin was able to make a prediction about what people were, were going to find decades later. And as it turns out, that when we look, say, let's look at the fish to limbed animal, the invasion of land, how fish evolved to walk on land. The fish that were living in these streams 380 million years ago, they were still in water, but they had lungs and gills, they had fins with arm bones inside, they had necks. Many of the structures that were later to be useful to their descendants for life on land actually originally arose in fish living in water. It turns out lungs are primitive. Most fish have some sort of air sac, whether it's a lung or a swim bladder. Um, lungs were around well before eons before the first animals took their first steps on land. Look at the bird problem; feathers were around eons before the first you know the first birds took flight. They appeared in dinosaurs. So it's just a remarkably you know prescient uh, uh, comment uh, that Darwin made in response to this. Sometimes your best responses are you know come about as in, in opposition, and it, did, it worked really well for Darwin here.
0: Yeah, and I found that it fascinated me because, I, you know, in my mind, I know Darwin's original theory, and I feel like, oh, that theory sort of has echoed down through science ever since. But it feels like that this one sentence, that it was not so much a change of form as a change of function, ha- has had even more relevance in the, in the decades and mm-hmm. s- more than a century since, since Darwin came up with that idea. It seems to echo throughout your whole book.
1: That's right. That's sort of the unifying theme for much of evolutionary biology since Darwin. And it's actually the unifying theme of my book. And it somehow was lost in the popular conversation of it. And that's kind of what I wanted to, you know, center on in the book. Um, And because it applies equally well to DNA as it does, say, lungs and feathers. You know It applies at every level of biological organization, which is what's so brilliant about it. You know? And you know, Darwin saw a lot with evolution, but he really set up a way of thinking about how life's diversity came about Uh, And, you know, as we've learned more, we've modified, you know, the original ideas that Darwin had. But this one, the change in function uh, is, is, to me, is as important as the other ones in some ways, uh, natural selection and and common descent, because together they all work uh, to explain how, you know, huge changes can happen over evolutionary time. Yeah, yeah.
0: So we've been talking about Charles Darwin, and a lot of us know something about him, but you introduced us to a lot of other scientists who as you say, challenged or built on or extended Darwin's ideas. And and you talk about wanting to tell these human stories. Who, who are some of your favorites of those scientists?
1: Oh, man, there's so many. And so one of the joys about writing a book like this, honestly, is finding these people. You know, because you know, when you pick up a textbook, an intro textbook, it's always the same folks that come up. And uh, for me, I want to bring up people who, who have real whose whose personal narrative also tells the narrative of science. And and one of my absolute favorites is a Julia Barlow Platt. Julia Barlow Platt um, lived in the middle mid late eighteen hundreds, and she was um, a young woman at the University of Vermont and took a shine to to biology and applied to Harvard University for a, um, for a PhD. She ended up going there, but realized after being there that they weren't going to award a woman a PhD. They let her in, but they were not going to let her get the degree. So facing that challenge, she went to Germany, undeterred. She went to Germany where, where women could get PhDs. She got one there, then returned to the United States to work in a marine lab in Massachusetts, the famous Marine Biological lab- Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And there she started to work on salamanders and sharks. Okay, And she was interested in their development from egg to adult, how their body you know, develops in, in, in the embryo. And she was working at the time on the development of the head and the jaws and so forth. And she found that a certain type of cell um, gives rise to the head, uh, bones in the head. which And, and this discovery, while it seems arcane, ran completely against the grain of what other biologists were thinking at the time. And she was hooted almost out of the field for this discovery uh, to the point where she ended up writing a letter to the president of Stanford University, David Starr Jordan at the time, saying, look, I've done a lot of science, and she was incredibly accomplished. She published like four or five or six papers at the time, which was remarkable. By all accounts, she should have had a job. And she said, look, I have to leave the field if you can't give me a job. She was literally begging in this letter. It was was really hard for me to read. Except when you realize that she left science, moved to Pacific Grove, California, became the mayor of Pacific Grove, California, and ended up saving Monterey Bay. <laughs> so science is lost, it's like the world's game. So this woman just was undeterred in everything she did, and it turns out that that discovery that she made that was so that was so criticized um, was later set the stage to show that that particular kind of cell um, gives rise to so many of our traits that she was able that the people who built on her work were able to show that many of the fundamental traits of our own body came about not independently, you know, each independently, but arose because a single kind of cell originally rose, arose, which gave rise to all those different kinds of tissues and organs. Um, just a remarkable discovery. And for me, her human story of endurance, um, uh, she just was undeterred in everything she did. And it just, I found it so inspiring. She just didn't let failure in any way stop her, you know? And uh, so I found, you know, when I write books like that, or when I write stories like that in the book, uh, it inspires me, you know, um, so much to carry on with the book because, you know, every day, you know, some, some days you just don't feel like writing. But when I see stories like that, I'm like, yeah, you better write. <laughs> just look at these people, you know? Um, but there are other stories as well. A lot of the. Um, yeah, I mean so I, could go for, I mean there the 10 or 15 people in the book who just it really inspired me and she was one of the main ones.
0: So I I'm fascinated that you picked that story because I it was also one that really really resonated with me and partly because of the way she was as you said she was almost run out of of science and and I know this is still somewhat of an issue not as much as it was in her time but how how can we change the culture of science to get more women into the field?
1: It's so, you know, it's it's interesting. So in science, we vary by discipline, which is really remarkable to me. So if you look, say, at the physical sciences, look at math and physics. Very, um, They have very few women actually entering the field relative to other fields like biology, in particular my field, developmental biology, where our entering class is, you know, 60 or 70% female typically. Our challenge is, and, you know, is, as in science, is that we have a career track uh, which is based, I think, very much in, in, um, on uh, continuity. That is, you know, you, you go for a job, you get your grants, you get promoted. You know, it doesn't really allow for taking a pause for family life as easily. It does. It's not a very forgiving track. Um, We've done a very poor job of retaining women. So we're, we're pretty good, at least in biology, about getting women students into the field, even in the initial parts of the um, uh, 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 getting postdocs, getting degrees, f- females tend to do quite well there. The, where we lose them is in throughout the career track, in the early stages of assistant professor and, and by the tenure time, which is an uh, associate professor and so forth. So we have to do a much better job of, of, of keeping the pipeline going. And I think people are, have a real awareness of that now because I think there's the awareness of the, about the fact that all of us have blind spots, right? We all have cognitive biases. It's just an inevitable part of being a human being. And the more diverse our, um, our, um, our, we are as a discipline, the more diverse we are you know, in science, the more we'll have people with different views, different blind spots coming together. It opens up our perspectives in so many ways. You know, if you think about human health, for a long time, you know, it's really based on male biology, yeah. right? Yeah. But the more we have females in the field, all of a sudden we're learning, hey, that's that's the other 51%, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, is quite important. And it opens up our, our minds. And I think the same thing is true of science. The more, I mean, people are realizing that the more diverse teams are, the more they can uh, have, you know, creative solutions, Um so yeah, it's a real challenge. But I hope you know when I read a book like this, I hope it inspires people. You know, and a, a number of the the, the 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 characters that I that I developed, the scientists that I developed, are female, and that's yeah. for a reason yeah. because they're the stories I found most compelling. Because you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s, when a lot of these women I read about were working, uh, they were facing incredible barriers. You know, and um, and they they you know, they persevered and did incredible things. Yeah. I often think about, when I look back at my
0: own science education, that I would have found it much more compelling if, as you do, and as, for instance, Bill Bryson's book about the history of the universe does, that tells me not so much the science, but the history of how we got there. And, as you say, the human stories. Um, And I don't know how that would have been presented to me in a ninth grade biology class or a twelfth grade physics class, but I think it would have engaged me. And so I'm curious, do you still teach? And if so, what are your classes like?
1: Yeah, so I still teach. Um, You know, right now, obviously, uh, we're shifting to online education uh, because of current events. Uh, So I teach a course. uh, It's actually based on your inner fish. It's for non-majors. Um, so I'm dealing with the population that are mostly going to be econ, history, poli sci, that sort of stuff. Um, and it's 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 the deep history of the human body. It's like human anatomy and human development, but in you know, but I take apart its multi-billion-year history. You know, it's kind of like interfish, only like a, a kind of a level more difficult than say the, the general science book. Yeah. Um, and you know, the way I do it is again uh, coming down to it, I feel strongly that if we teach students how we know. Yeah, you know, What we know is important, but how we know, I think that's the hook a lot of times. What are the struggles for understanding things? How do we learn about you know, evolution? How do we learn about developmental biology? How do we learn about life's diversity? How do we find fossils? So I always focus on the how we know, because I think you know, the what we know is gonna change and grow over time, but the how we know, the discovery stories, I think they'll be remembered over time. You know, by by students, I like I like to think that. Yeah. yeah. Particularly if they're entertaining, um, and uh, so that's how I teach quite a bit. I'll I like to show quirky characters. Like one of the people in the book is one of the favorites. I love to show in class. Bashford Dean. Bashford Dean was a. Uh, Curator at both the American Museum of Natural History and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And he had this (laughs) funny personal quirk. He loved armor. In fact, he founded the armor collection at the Met in New York, which is an amazing collection. He loved armored fish from the fossil record, you know, ones that are about 400 million years old. And he loved, like, battle armor. He used to walk around Manhattan in battle armor. I mean, really, just an amazingly quirky person, you know. But those quirks made him a great research scientist. And so, you know, I use him as an entree to you know the fish with lungs story because he was one of the people who who discovered that. Well, but, you yeah, know, those are the details that really are fun. Yeah, I love those those characters.
0: Just in my own uh, research in the Victorian England, I mean, there's a there's a guy I don't know if you've heard of him named Henry, Henry Ackland uh, who was really involved in early efforts for sanitation and things. But he was one of these quirky guys who wanted to. Uh, taste every different animal he could taste, and he would say, "Oh well, you know, <laughs> vole tastes kind of like bat." You know, uh, it wasn't exactly scientific, but but again, yeah, you see that these kinds of of I don't know if obsessive is quite the right word, but these these quirky personalities um, often have a way of being able to look at the field uh, in, in a different way from from the people who are not quirky. I don't know.
1: Well, no, no, I think that's right. I mean, it sort of builds on the point you and I were talking about just earlier, which is, you know, the more different viewpoints you have, you know, of people exploring an issue, the more likely you're going to come up with some, you know, some important results, right? New results. And I think, you know, these quirky people have a different way of seeing the world right they and and i think that's that's really important yeah. and cuz we just you know we can't be monolithic you know in making decisions or in 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 our discoveries and so the more diversity we have diversity in every single way uh, i think the better for the field so a lot of us have this sense
0: that scientific discovery just proceeds calmly forward. You know, we do the research, we find the conclusion, we test the hypothesis. Every now and then we have a big leap forward when we discover something new and everyone agrees about all the ideas and, that we now hold as gospel. But you tell a story that's filled with mistakes and politics and infighting and resentment. Uh, talk about that side of, yeah. of scientific research for a minute.
1: That's right. So, I mean, we only have this sort of gradual... Progress idea of science, where one discovery leads to the next, and you know we eventually get it all right. Uh, only in retrospect, <laughs> right? Then right. Right? you look back, you can you can connect those dots in a linear narrative, and that only captures a tiny little fraction of the world. In fact, it's you know it's 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 so simplified, it's it's almost certainly false, or most in most cases, right? What you have at the time, you know, when people are are, are doing their science, is their imagine. Everybody fumbling in a dark room, you know, no lights. Just you're fumbling to try to find something just purely by touch. That's what science is about, yeah. you know. And you have people bumping into each other. You have somebody finding something, and everybody runs over there. You know what I mean? It's it's a uh, it's it's more like a kid's playroom than it is a, a continual narrative. And what you have is a situation where some people accidentally make a discovery that draws an attention, or sometimes. People discover the same thing at the same time and they, they interpret it slightly differently. Um, no, science is much more of a riot of activity, something, you know, something much more complicated than a linear progress of one idea leading to the next. And oftentimes some of the stories I like to tell are ideas that are wrong, but they were so influential, they stimulated other people to ideas that had much more enduring qualities, you know. So I will tell the story of ideas that people came up with. They were actually good at the time, but they turned out not to be correct. And some of the people who were opposed to those ideas actually, you know, they were stimulated by that wrong idea to, to do something else. Like That's why the darwin Mavart exchange was important. But there are others in the book as well. So I love that aspect as well, you know, because... You know, people are—we're all fumbling around in the dark here. Um, you know, and that's what science is about. And uh, we're trying to build on each other, but it's usually m- much less linear than our narratives. You know, our convenient narratives typically. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love you. You mentioned
0: briefly about the role of accidents in scientific discovery, and that's that's certainly you know a rich vein where people think they're looking for one thing oh, and gotcha. they discover something else. Yeah. Uh, so there. Are a one lot of my
1: favorites is I'm sorry. No, go ahead. One of my favorites in the book was uh, about a guy who he, the labels on his vials fell off. He, he put animals in vials, right. embryos in vials, and the labels fell off, and he couldn't identify the, the critters in the vials. And that little mistake led to a whole new theory of animal yeah. diversity. Yeah. I mean, it, stuff like that. It's <laughs> just, it's, I love those stories. Um,
0: I, I'm also struck by, you know, there's a lot of fictional worlds out there right now, like the world of the X-Men is one that strikes me, that are based on the idea of the existence of mutant individuals. But mutant individuals have actually played a major role in the development of genetic science. Can you give us a little glimpse into that?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, so you know, when you're studying, so when you're studying genetics, right, you're you're looking, the people who originally, some made some of the biggest discoveries in genetics, the most foundational ones, were working on fruit flies. And this was in the 1915, 1920s, 1940s. Uh, And the reason why they work on fruit flies, a tiny little fly, you know, uh, is they breed really fast, you can get lots of them. And what they would do is they'd make colonies of these flies and they'd look for mutants and mutants would be ones that where you could see like differences in the number of bristles on their back or the size and shape of the wing, things like that. And then once they'd find a mutant, they'd, they'd breed it, true, you know, so they'd create a line of those mutants, a, a, you know, a, a family of those mutants, if you will. Uh, and then they'd be able to study the mutants. Like, what's going wrong in these mutants? Because it's the mutants that tell us a lot about normal development. Like, if you have a, a fly mutant that is lacking a wing, Right, and you study that fly mutant lacking the wing, it tells you, well, maybe that gene is clearly important for wing formation, right? Because you're missing it, you're missing the wing. So there you have a gene. If you have a fly without a wing, the mutant is telling you which is missing clearly a gene that's very important, and that's the philosophy there. Well, people were cataloging mutants, and they started to find some real zingers. Um, Here's one in the fly. Uh, Here, a mutant fly that had a leg... Where its antenna should be, right? right. <laughs> okay, it had you know it's, it's sticking out of its head a leg. There was another mutant of that kind, and there are others as well, uh, which had a whole body segment duplicated. Instead of having two wings, it had two sets of wings, it had four wings. So it's like somebody duplicated the whole thorax. And so people started to make catalogs of these sort of special mutants, and because they're they're clearly showing something, like the these mutants are really showing the genes that are building bodies because when you lack them, the body is sort of messed up in certain very predictive, predictive ways. Yeah. So people made you know, these mutants have just been so important and some of them are truly astonishing.
0: Um, so you also use the word monsters at one point about to describe some things like, you know, the fly with the arm growing out of his head. And you also talk about how we can actually create these monsters, these mutant individuals by manipulating their DNA What are the implications of that for the future of caring for the human species, and where ought that to stop?
1: Yeah, so there's actually several questions embedded there, so let me just unpack it a bit. So these mutants that I was telling you about, when we look at them in the DNA, they're basically showing the The genes that help build bodies from embryo to adult. And one thing we've learned is by looking at those, like the mutant with which has the leg sticking out of its head instead of the antenna, it turns out, those genes are active in early development of the fly, placing the organs in the right place, right? Turns out we have versions of those genes too. So do mice, so do chickens, so do lizards, so to fish. Turns out the toolkit, the genetic toolkit that builds bodies, is deeply conserved over long periods of time. It's it's a fundamental property of animal life. We have versions of those same genes too. So those are game changing studies because they gave us a new window into how evolution might happen, right? Um, now, your question is actually, we can make mutants. We definitely can. And you can do it in lots of different ways. You can hit creatures with uh, ultraviolet uh, with radiation. Uh, you can actually now get in there and manipulate the DNA. You can get in there with a technique called CRISPR-Cas genome editing. There are other techniques as well. Get in there and rewrite the DNA. Cut and paste it. You can take the genes out. You can put new ones in. You can swap them among species. Species, I could. In fact, we do. We will take the genes of a fish, and we could put them that that make fins, and we can put them in mice and ask what happens. We could put mouse genes in fish. We could put human genes in fish, um, and then watch what happens during development. These are all experiments we can do. So there's a brave new world in sort of genetic capabilities, and obviously we now have to ask the question: You know, what are what are appropriate uses of these kinds of of technologies because clearly they're a, a Pandora's box. I think there are some cases where pretty much most people would universally agree where we want to use these technologies you know, even in humans. We, let's say they cure a, a, a genetic disease right. and they can cure that genetic disease with, you know, uh, 99.99% efficacy. Well, I think we'd all agree, yeah, we want to be in there. We want to do that. But there are other uses, I think, that are much, much more difficult. Uh, and those would be performance-enhancing ones, yeah. Yeah. ones that put the embryo at risk. You know, those are ones, I think, that, um, you know, most people would look away from uh and there are strong arguments very strong arguments not to do them particularly because these techniques aren't guaranteed to you know work universally they can do more harm than good you know so there's a range of these conditions you know so when we're talking about treating a you know genetic disease uh sure that you know with low risk if we're talking about performance enhancing sorts of things i think you know most people would uh would look away from that yeah,
0: yeah. So you're a paleontologist by trade. Um, I read last week about the discovery of a bird-like dinosaur that weighs a tenth of an ounce. Which I, you know we think of dinosaurs as yeah. being gigantic. Uh, I'm not going to get the name pronounced right, but it's Acutodentavis. We've been digging up <laughs> dinosaurs close. for you know a couple of centuries. If you had to guess, what, what percentage of their species do you think we've even discovered yet?
1: Oh no, we haven't. You know we. It's amazing we have any fossils at all. <laughs> it's incredible because you, know, you think about what it takes for a critter to make it in the fossil record. You know, obviously they die and they have to be buried, buried very rapidly in a situation where their bodies are relatively uh, uh, preserved and undeformed for eons, you know, millions and millions and millions of years. You know, so clearly, what we're sampling with the fossil record is really kind of only the tip of the iceberg of of the diversity of creatures that are on the planet at any given time, and uh, so you have to take that into consideration. Yet, despite that, we know so much, like the bird in amber that came out, the little mini bird in amber that came out last week, or yeah. uh, or the human fossils, you know, Lucy and all the hominid fossils we have, you know, um, showing the origin of some of our traits, or the fossils that we discover that tell us how fish to walk on land the fact that we can find anything like these at all still, you know, still brings me a considerable amount uh, of joy. You know, so you think about the more we learn about the fossil record, the more we realize that life just has an enormous diversity and has had that enormous diversity for billions of years, you know, and we're just only sampling the sort of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. I, I
0: want to go back before we finish to this, this idea of using, old features for new ways. And, and I'm going to quote from the book here. You, you call it, using ancient features in new ways opens up a world of possibilities for descendants. What, is, what does that idea mean for our future, for the future of, of what we now call humankind?
1: Well, you think about our future. Our future is a very technological one. You know, we're going to be, in fact, our immediate future is a very technological one. You know, you think about what's, how, what's affecting our world right now. You know, it's a little tiny piece of genetic material, coronavirus, in a, in a shell, and that can change the world. You know and so you know our future will really depend on scientists understanding that genetic material and how to stop it and you know i mean and how to disrupt it uh and disrupt its, its activity on cells but that just applies more broadly you know the many of the problems we face going forward you know are ones where we will have to come up with technolo- technological solutions whether they're devices or gizmos. Or pharmaceuticals, or cultural practices, or educational practices, or ways of behaving, and so forth, that it's really going to take science to do that. And when we talk about science, you know, with science, we're repurposing ideas all the time. It functions like evolution. You know, we're taking old ideas and modifying them in new ways. We're combining ideas in different ways, just like evolution has. So I think the pathways that evolutionary change has taken over billions of years are the ones that our own ideas are taking. technologies are taking uh, going forward uh and uh, you know we uh, you think about the kinds of technologies we have now uh they are you know they're so utterly they're utterly more powerful than what we had even 20 years ago you know had if coronavirus struck 25 years ago before we have all the had all the genetic tools we had now we would have a long way you know, before there's um, before there's any amelioration. Yeah. But now we can communicate very rapidly and do social distancing. We know a lot about um, you know uh, sanitation and and hand washing, but also we know a lot about viruses and how to stop them. So that's what uh, lends me some optimism. Yeah, yeah. We like to end every
0: episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same ten questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words. But hopefully, I'll give our listeners some insight into you and your writing and and the way you work. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Go for it. What word do you love to work into your writing? Resilience. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Of course. Well, it's two words. Oh, that's fair. Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> that's <laughs> Where is your favorite place to write?
1: Uh, I love to write in my office on a quiet Sunday morning.
0: Where could you never write?
1: Mm, can never write at home.
0: To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: Um, leading sentences with a conjunction. Yeah.
0: What's the first book you remember reading? Tidy the Beaver. What are you reading now? I'm reading
1: Hilary Tell's new novel. Oh, yeah.
0: What book would you like to have written?
1: Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky.
0: What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will?
1: Historical fiction. With, preferably with uh, a murder oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> in it. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear
1: a reader tell you? Uh, that my book changed their life.
0: This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can currently enjoy free shipping on all orders to find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Neil Schubin, whose latest book, Some Assembly Required, is available wherever books are sold. Neil, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider posting a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to number one New York Times bestselling author, Chris Bojalian about his new novel, The Red Lotus. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.